0: Thanks for for signing up for this program. We we hope to make it worthwhile. Um, the what we're going to do today is using as our starting point the the recent Supreme Court decision um, in 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 Ray Grand Jury. We're going to explore the tricky terrain of the attorney-client privileges application to dual-purpose communications. Um that's a bit of a mouthful, but if you signed up for this presentation, you are probably, um, you may have experience, you may have grappled with it, or you may just be curious about what to do in a, in a situation um, involving attorney-client communications, either in a motion situation or how to proceed pre-litigation. Hopefully, there will be no litigation, but how to govern your conduct or how to litigate um, Attorney-client privilege matters when you what you haven't got is a simple cookie cutter communication between lawyer on the one hand and client on the other, and whatever gets said about uh, the substance of the of the representation is privileged. In a in a so-called dual-purpose situation, you do not have that. Um, as we'll come to it later, but. Dual purpose implies two purposes, and oftentimes you have situations in which there could be two, three, four, five uh, reasons for communication that may contain something, arguably attorney-client privilege. So this case law tries to sort out what to do in that situation and and how to govern yourself in that situation. So um, what brought it to our attention was the the matter um, after Sir Sherari was granted in the Supreme Court? Uh, what we will do today is take you through the subject this way. Um, ben Lejoy uh, of Bailey Glasser is going to speak first. Ben is going to talk about the case itself in Ray Grand Jury in the Supreme Court. Then I'm going to talk about its application in the uh, in Massachusetts in the First Circuit where. You all work. Um, Then we're going to hear from uh, Payal Salzberg and Angie Kudico about the in-house and outside counsel uh, perspective, respectively, on these communications, how to deal with them, how to, you know, uh, get your work done with this doctrine hanging over you. And and, uh, then we'll we'll open it up to some questions. Uh, So I hope that's a sufficient introduction uh ben is going to start us off and he's going to talk about the case
1: itself over to you ben thanks dan Um, yes i'll jump right into it um and hopefully i don't don't take too long on on the case itself but um as dan said um this all kind of became very relevant recently um through the supreme court case in re grand jury um which considered um which could have expanded or further clarified the scope of the attorney-client privilege in the context of dual-purpose communications, as Dan said. Um, The main question was, um, before that court, the appropriate test to determine um, that issue. And just to to take a step back in terms of the facts of the case, um, the petitioner was an unnamed law firm uh, that prepares tax forms for clients and provides tax advice. And this law firm and its client were served with a grand jury subpoena, seeking documents in connection with a criminal tax investigation um, of the firm's client. And the law firm and client produced um, some records, but also invoked the attorney-client privilege and work product doctrine to withhold some others and portions of others. Um, So the government moved to compel um, the law firm to produce these withheld records, and then there was a... Subsequent to that, an in-camera review and the district court granted the government's motion in part. Um, The district court found that that certain communications and work papers didn't qualify for the attorney-client privilege, even though the law firm also provided legal advice on tax-related issues. So the district court ordered the production of documents where the primary or predominant purpose was about the procedural aspects of preparing the client's tax return. The, the the law firm disagreed and continued to withhold them. And the district court granted the government's motion um, to hold the law firm in contempt. And then the petitioner law firm appealed to the Ninth Circuit. And essentially the law firm argued a more expansive um, approach to attorney client privilege um, that the court should adopt the significant purpose test that was recited um, in a DC circuit case. And under this, Dual purpose communication, which I won't go too too in, into because I know Dan's um, going to give a deep d- dive on the doctrine itself. But under the test, the dual purpose communication will be pr- privileged so long as a significant purpose of the communication was to obtain or provide legal advice. Um, the the uh, this directs the courts to look to the legal purpose behind the communication and evaluate whether it's significant and notably it's not really doing a comparison to the other purposes. Um, It doesn't matter if there's also a significant or more significant non-legal purpose. The petitioner, um, the government, um, or sorry, still a petitioner, which is the law firm, um, argued that this separate primary purpose test was hard and unpredictable. um, And for the privilege to do its job, basically predictability is important and necessary. So the uh, conversely, the, the government, who is the respondent, argued that the primary purpose test was the correct test um, to resolve the dual purpose attorney-client communications issue. Um, it, that it was the test that's adopted by the majority of the federal appellate courts, um, and in the the primary purpose test instructs courts in the context of in this context to locate the primary or predominant purpose of the communication between the lawyer and the client. Um, and uh, an important distinction the primary purpose test directs the courts to compare um, the legal purpose to the non legal purpose of the communication and assess what's um, sig- most significant, more significant. The Ninth Circuit, um, when it went to the Ninth Circuit, um, affirmed the district court's contempt orders and applied the primary purpose test um, and specifically found um, that. Um, it applied the primary purpose test. It also um, there's some nuance there to suggest that it didn't it express it expressly um, did not decide whether whether or not the significant purpose um, was test in that in that D.C. Circuit case was um, potentially relevant in certain contexts. Um, But but I won't get into all that. So uh, eventually, um, the petitioner sought a writ assert to the Supreme Court. Uh, The Supreme Court granted the the petition um, in October of 22. Um, And again, it's all focusing essentially on um, whether or not the the lower court's primary purpose test was correct. Um, So one of the issues was... um, the petitioner was arguing that there's this circuit split among the circuits uh, about whether to employ the um, primary purpose test um, or not the the um, respondent, the government, um essentially was trying to argue that there is no circuit split um, and that it all kind of fits together. Um, and I won't just because I'm I don't have a ton of time. I won't get into all of the nuances of that. but, um, in in written arguments and in oral arguments, the um the petitioner argued that it should adopt the significant purpose test and reject the primary purpose test. Basically, the significant purpose test best protects the client's ability to seek bona fide legal advice from lawyers in situations where legal and non-legal purposes can't be separated. Um, in in the law firm's view, the Ninth Circuit's primary purpose test denies the privilege communications that privilege to communications that have a legal purpose. Any time the court later finds a non-legal purpose outweighs the legal purpose, even if it's by a little bit, and it the Ninth Circuit test requires the parties in the court to disentangle competing interests and identify the most important one. And the law in the law firm's view, this is an inherently impossible task. Um, and so the one little kind of interesting thing that I'll say before I move on is in the reply brief and an oral argument, the law firm kind of pivoted, seemed to pivot a little bit um, into using terminology of um, whether or not it was a bona fide um, Le- uh, w- whether or not it was, a, it was a real and legitimate legal purpose to the communication, bona fide. And um, this was kind of called out by the, the justices during oral argument, which I'll get into in a second. Um, in the opposition brief, the government argued um, that it should reject the significant purpose test the favor for the primary purpose test. The majority of circuits, as I mentioned, employ the primary purpose test. Um, that the Ninth Circuit decision didn't actually implicate the circuit split, um, based on its language, um, and made the point that federal law recognizes attorney-client privilege, not accountant-client privilege. So at oral arguments, um, I'll just, I know I'm kind of short on time, so I'll just try to highlight a few things that the justices, um, the justices' questions were pretty insightful. Um, and, um, so we thought that, quoting or highlighting a few of those would be kind of um, a good illustration to understand the issues here. So um one of like the, the categories of things that the justices um, questioning brought out so many of the justices expressed skepticism that during oral argument that the court um, could op- that this the justices could offer guidance that improves upon what the district court and magistrate judges already, um, are doing on a, on a daily basis for a long time, and um, for example, Justice Jackson um, wrote: It seems to me that district courts are are not doing math. They have a lot of experience. Um, they're making a judgment call based on specific circumstances. Um, Justice Sotomayor says: I really haven't seen much to much to say that it's difficult to administer the primary purpose test. Um, Justice Kagan is quoted a lot in, in the saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, the justices also generally didn't feel comfortable with broadly expanding the attorney client privilege, um, under this, under the bona fide purpose test and justice, justice Jackson, for example, said, um, in the new world, you wouldn't be arguing because you'd win all it. All you'd be all because you have um essentially it's overexpansive and we wouldn't be here. It's um to that effect. And Justice Roberts um, was struggling with the def with the word with the phrase bona fide, questioning does it mean good faith by the lawyer? Something a lawyer would actually think, not make up. Um and basically alluding to the fact that this is kind of over-inclusive and problematic that, um, under the, this, um, bona fide test which is basically, if it's just 1% legal, then would the whole thing be like protected even if it, that's just such a marginal thing. So if there were some insightful questions there, um, basic, ultimately in a peer curium opinion, the Supreme court, um, dismissed the writ um, only writing that it was improvidently filed, and it, there was no explanation for that. Um, doesn't necessarily mean that the justices have no interest in this issue. Um, it could mean a whole, a whole number of things. Um, most likely, it just um, believed that this wasn't the right vehicle for exploring, this case wasn't the right vehicle for exploring this this issue, um, it, it was a grand jury case that involved a lot of confidential things. There was a lot of reasons. So it is po- it is potentially, foresee- well, it's possible that they may entertain this issue once again. Um, we can't rule it out. But um, where we are now is that basically, you look to the lower courts in the respective jurisdiction, that's the governing rule of law on this issue. Um, most courts do employ the significant purpose test, um, the significant, sorry, the primary purpose test. Um, so that's that's gonna continue to prevail. Um, there's some nuances with, again, how the primary purpose test and the significant purpose test kind of could fit together harmoniously in certain contexts. Um, but um, I guess that's an issue for another day. So with that, I'll turn it back to, to Dan. Thanks, everybody. Dan, I think you're on mute.
0: It's funny that for a case where it was ruled that they never should have granted threat in the first place, uh, there's an awful lot of doctrine to kind of fathom um and then uh, covered covered it uh, well in a in a short span. Um so I'd like to move to um because I think this is what if if I were in your position, anybody watching this, the reason I would tune is is to find out what how this affects me and what I can do about it. We're all practitioners. And um, so I'm going to focus on the on the uh Massachusetts and First Circuit Law. And within that, I'm going to focus principally on Massachusetts law. The reason is because in in uh, many cases in federal court essentially uh, cases tried under questions of state law which would be under the Erie Doctrine um a lot of diversity cases uh the the state law of privilege is going to control anyway which uh, I'll just going back to Ben's point um uh, Justice Sotomayor had kind of a funny question in in uh, in the oral argument she was saying sort of all right. If you want us to apply the Ninth Circuit case, the Ninth Circuit case law to federal questions, are you then saying that maybe we'll have to apply that to federal questions and uh, apply a different standard on on privilege analyses on state law questions? Um, and naturally, what she was getting at is yes, that's exactly what the what the what the petitioner was doing, trying to open up an incredibly difficult can of worms, doctrinal can of worms. So one of the things to keep in mind, if, if you were looking at an overview of the law, is that this is this is a highly doctrinal area. But if you're a practitioner, what you understand is most cases where there are privilege disputes are not decided on predominantly doctrinal grounds. They're, they depend on the facts of the record, a particular communication, the satisfactoriness of a particular privilege log, who was participating in the communication, were there any non-lawyers or non-clients present, and so forth. Um, and is there any legal advice in the communication anyway, uh, even if it's between a lawyer and a client? So normally, a court assessing something like this is going to work not from the top down doctrinally. Uh, with all its contingencies and, and, and hypotheticals, it's going to work from the ground up. What are the papers in front of it? The, 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 the communications themselves, the privilege log with a layer of argument put over it. So Massachusetts, uh, the good news is I think that Massachusetts largely works that way. It does not superimpose, this is an important point in the segue from in re grand jury in the Supreme Court to our lives. It does not impose the kind of doctrinal test that either the Ninth Circuit with its uh, primary purpose test or some of the other circuits, the DC Circuit, I believe, with its significant purpose test, it does not have a test like that at all. And in some of the appellate law, it, uh, it, it says expressly, we don't have a test like that, although other people have tried to organize the subject that way. So, in Massachusetts, what happens? I'm going to begin with the result of of how these controversies will wind up. This is based significantly significantly on a reading of the law, but also in significant part on some on some privileged questions that I've had to litigate myself in both state and federal court. And I think what's going to happen is this. if you I'll put it in really blunt terms, if you want to keep a document out of discovery, if you have a communication and you can get a beachhead on arguing that this is a an attorney-client communication and satisfies the basic requisites, you are likely more likely under Massachusetts law to succeed than you are in some of the other far-flung jurisdictions. And the reasons, because Massachusetts and the First Circuit don't say that the reason you're withholding it, okay. Uh, if, if there's a dual-purpose communication or a multi-purpose communication, it might have business advice. It might have tax advice. It might be in a close corporation, and it might be really just a communication from one of the, you know, 33% owners to a lawyer. So it might have to do with the sale of stock between parties. It could, it could be anything. It doesn't have to be just legal advice from the corporation client to the lawyer. So. Massachusetts is not going to say if they don't get into this. We're going to rate all the reasons why this could, um, why this communication was sent, and find out where in that hierarchy the attorney-client pot falls. And if it's not at the top of the pile, like the Ninth Circuit would say, it's not privileged. Massachusetts doesn't do that. Massachusetts works from the ground up, and it says that in. In some cases, it's almost categorical the other way. Uh, Justice O'Connor, uh, late of the uh, SJC and and this world, I believe, um, wrote his own uh, grand jury investigation case in 1990, where he said the privilege extends to all communications made to an attorney or counselor, and so on and so forth, having to do with the with the privilege matter. That would mean. If there were six reasons to send this communication and the attorney client aspect was the sixth, it would be privileged. I don't think he meant it to be quite so categorical because some of the other cases create some flexibility. But I think, if anything, Massachusetts, although it tries to be sort of flexible and sensible, I think, if anything, doctrinally, it's at the opposite end of the spectrum from the Ninth Circuit. So anything you can basically justify as privilege, you are you have a good chance of withholding. Um, that's really important. W- with the remainder of my time, I'm going to so I, basically, I, you know, you can look up the test of attorney-client privilege. It's a it's a it's a standard test. Maybe I'll read it to you before this is over. But it's in all the cases, and I think most of you know what the elements are. It has to be between an attorney and client about the subject matter. There have to be no strangers to the attorney-client relationship uh, in the communication, uh, and it has has not to have been disclosed outside the privilege afterwards. As long as you keep the privilege inviolate and secure, your your communication is protected. So um, a situation you will, if you can do that in Massachusetts, I think you are likely to keep your stuff privileged. Um, That is sort of, it's going to depend on your case if you're litigating it on the communication you're making now if, if you pick up the phone and talk to your client, uh, and how you could justify having made that communication or the email that you sent, but you are likely to keep it out of discovery. On the other hand, many of these cases in this area litigate situations in which someone other than the attorney and the client are on the email or the call or sitting in the room. There's been a great deal of litigation about those things. Uh, in Massachusetts, what is triggered is what's called the derivative attorney client privilege doctrine. And in federal law, they generally call it the COVEL or COVEL, K-O-V-E-L, uh, was a case um, in which involving situations in which the presence of a third party to the communication does not destroy the privilege. You can imagine why that would be heavily litigated, and and it is. And here is what happens in Massachusetts law. The lead case is probably uh, Commissioner of Revenue versus Comcast at four fifty three, Mass App. Excuse me, four fifty three Mass. Uh, And it recognizes in that case, I believe Justice Marshall was the author of this. She said, we recognize the difficulty of drawing a line between legal advice on the one hand and tax or accounting advice on the other. Many of these cases involve um, accountants sitting in trying to make things intelligible between the lawyer and the client. Um, So... Sometimes it's privileged and sometimes it's not, and it depends on the facts of the case. But essentially what you have to keep in mind is this, that the third party who is present in this setting has to be essential, has to act, you should think of the person as having to act essentially as an interpreter, the way a French-speaking client who gets hauled into, into United States court. And a Massachusetts English-speaking lawyer need a language translator. If somebody translates between French and English, and they are they're just a translator, not party to the to the relationship, that's protected communication. In situations where an accountant or some other expert like that is necessary to make the people intelligible, to make the lawyer and the client intelligible to one another, that's protected. If that third person maybe who has the capability of making them intelligible to one another is present, but is not actually making them intelligible to one another is doing something else is participating in the talking about all kinds of other things that, it, or it's, it, and it's often an email. You all know today, that is not a privileged communication. So I'm going to turn it over now because my time is winding up to the, to the people who will talk to you about their experience in the, in the, with the practical aspects of this doctrine. But as as bullet points to take away um, litigating or living, working in, in Massachusetts in the First Circuit, remember, if a third person is in on the call or part of the email, you are likely, you are unlikely to keep that privilege because in that respect, Massachusetts cases are as strict as they are. I wouldn't say they're liberal on the other end, but they're they're soft if it's just you and your client on the communication. And I think they're very, they're very hard. If there's a third party, uh, it, it takes a lot to justify that person's um, inclusion in the privilege. Just bear that in mind, and everything else will depend on the on the facts of your case. If you're ever in a situation where you have to bone up on this, you'll bone up on the law. And uh, you can find my email. And if anybody ever has a question about this and wants to email me about it, I'd be happy to just talk to you about it, sort of point you in the right, right direction, not advise you, but just help you. Uh, find out where you can get started and and stuff like that and talk to you about this kind of just background stuff. So with that, I think we'll turn it over uh, to Payal and um, Angie, and they will talk about the um, practical aspects from the in-house counsel and the outside counsel world. Thanks.
2: Dan, thanks very much. Um, And you know, as Jan was just mentioning, uh, you know, one of the things that comes into play here is deciding who is a need-to-know person on on the internal communications that you're sending, the external commu- communications that you're sending. Um, start considering some of the p- practical applications of some of these tenets. It can it can feel a little dizzying sometimes, especially when you think about the variety of scenarios where things like this can pop up. Um, one area that frequently touches on on some of these privilege questions is internal investigations. Um, if your organization finds itself having to conduct an internal investigation, there's usually a number of things going on all at the same time. You're maybe engaging an external communications team, um, external law firms, public relations firms. Um, you're doing damage control internally, probably while trying to, to prepare for potential litigation down the road. Um, and in that sense, the damage control element of the work that you're doing or advising on may not necessarily be considered a legal purpose. Um, For example, there's a case uh, that was filed in 2020. It's U.S. ex rel. Wallman v. Mass General. Um, I'm sure a number of you have seen this, you know, in the news as it's played out over the last few years, but there were a number of serious whistleblower allegations that were made by a surgeon at Mass General um, about a decade ago about some questionable practices among their surgeons. Uh, Mass General engaged an external firm to conduct an investigation. That firm issued a report in 2011 um, that was then leveraged in 2015 when some of this made the news and the Boston Globe Spotlight team started doing an investigation about uh, some of the allegations that had been made. Uh, At that time, the hospital released that report to an external law firm that was helping them navigate uh, the PR side of this. Um, And at that time, they weren't necessarily considering any impending litigation uh but then also released that same report to the chair of of their board um this action was filed as i said you know in 2020 several years later and the plaintiff asked uh that this report be produced in discovery along with its related documents the defendants of course you know uh declined to do so and uh the court ultimately held that The documents were subject to attorney-client privilege. They weren't subject to work work product privilege. Um, But in releasing the documents to the external PR firm, uh, the hospital essentially uh, waived their privilege because the work that the PR firm was doing didn't have a legal purpose, was intended to navigate the investigation that the the newspaper was doing. Um, And the timeline, unfortunately, just didn't work in their favor there. And I'll kick it to pile for just a second. She had another uh, case that she was going to explore briefly and then we'll talk about some more real world,
3: world scenarios. Yeah, um, thanks Angie. And before I jump to the uh, first circuit case that kind of muddies the water a little bit more for federal privilege purposes, at least. Um, we have a question that has come in um, and Dan, maybe you can weigh in on it. Um, maybe Angie can weigh in on it. The question is, can you speak about engaging an accountant or other third parties about as a consulting expert to protect under the attorney work product doctrine and to protect those third-party communications. How difficult is it? Is that assuming everything these days is in anticipation of litigation? So, Dan.
0: Hello, Angie.
2: So and this is that's a great question. Um, this is something Pyle and I actually um intended to talk about as well. Um, it's it's really important as you're giving advice that isn't related to a specific suit or action um to make sure i in my opinion that you're separating out your emails um if you're if you're giving business advice um that sh- to the extent that it's possible shouldn't be included with any emails that are providing any sort of legal analysis legal advice um, and, and drawing that bright line i think between between true business advice and true legal advice um is is probably one of the best things to do um Kyle and I will probably talk about this again in a little bit. I'm also a big believer in in picking up the phone and having as many of these conversations over the phone. um, So you're not, you know, going through the process of making the sausage in your email. Um, You know, people want to memorialize decisions that were made, follow ups that need to be done, things like that. Um, You know, those are certainly pretty innocuous emails that can be sent after the fact. But for any substantive conversations and, and decisions that need to be made, sometimes it's just easier to pick up the phone. Dan, I don't know if you
0: want to add anything to that. Yeah, well, I, I as insofar as um, uh, a con, a consulting expert goes, my my just in sense hearing the question is that would be wholly subsumed in the doctrine governing um, consulting experts. So I think you know um, you're protected there, and I I'm not sure how. Layering over or peeling off the attorney-client aspect should affect that. I've n- I've never thought about that uh, to be honest with you, but um, that that would be my answer. Um, so, yeah. Oh, um, Angie, I, I'm just going to make a comment, Angie. If everybody uh, were as conscientious as you and separated out their true business from true legal <laughs> emails, um, there's a lot of stuff that I wouldn't get to. <laughs> A motion practice on in court. I have not found that to be um, widespread. Um, That that's not to. I'm not remarking on my clients because my, I people don't generally go after my stuff. But um, I've seen plenty of litig uh, cases and uh, documents that get submitted in camera that I end up getting copies of where it's it's and you can see how this would be. It all gets marbled together. It's like spaghetti. So I think Angie's advice is really important there. If
2: Dan don't misunderstand please know that that's not something that I'm able to do you know every single day it's it's one of those things that you catch yourself and when possible you know start start a couple of different email threads if it makes sense but you know to your point it's it is really hard to do in practice you're juggling a few different balls in the air at the same time and you know you get ahead of steam going in a conversation and an email it's 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 tough to split out sometimes it happens
0: yeah and and, and later on somebody will argue anyway about whether, let's say you separated them out. Did you separate them out well enough? You know, litigators can come in and and hash up anything, you know, but uh, if you're trying to do it and if if you're flagging the really glaring ones that need to be kept out, um, then you're doing well. So way to go.
3: Yeah, so let me jump in now with um, a little bit more on the federal side of things. Uh, Angie talked about the Mass General case, which was in 2020, but the First Circuit had spoken in 2011, a little bit at least, um, on the issue of, you know, how much of a legal, uh, what percentage or sub, I suppose, you know, what significance does the legal aspect of uh, your communication have versus the non-legal aspect? And that was the case of luberus versus Uncommon Productions. That's 663 Federal Third uh, Six, and it's a 2011 case. Um, That was a case where there were a couple of brothers who owned um, plantations, sugar plantations, um, and they had a documentary made about the working conditions of the laborers in those uh, sugar plantations. And the brothers thought that the documentary, the way it was uh, presented, was defamatory. So they brought a lawsuit for defamation um, against the documentary makers and the film production company. And as part of that lawsuit, they wanted to get um the report of the outside, which is this is the third party that comes in the third party who was hired to verify the facts in the documentary so that they could get errors and emission policies. So basically, the documentary makers knew that they could potentially have issues down the line. and so they wanted to get errors and emissions policies. and then the insurance company says, well, we want to hire a third party to make sure that the facts here are accurate so that we're not covering some blatant falsities. Um, so as part of the litigation, the brothers um, who were the subject of this documentary wanted that report. Um, and the question there before the uh, before the district court and the appeals court was, well, there was multiple purposes for this, right? There was a business decision for the insurance company to decide whether they were gonna give um, the insurance policy coverage, Versus, um, you know, they had gone through the their attorneys to figure out how to get this policy. So there were there were some legal aspect to it, in with the insurance company working with the um, uh, the documentary producers through the attorney. So essentially, in 2011, at least the it was in dicta, but the First Circuit seems to say that it's not entirely clear from this record that the purpose did not incorporate a meaningful attorney-client privilege component. Now, the word meaningful is very close to the bonafide term that Ben had talked about in the SCOTUS case, right? So First Circuit Lease Indicta seems to be saying, well, we're looking, it's a much more expansive kind of like what the state court in Massachusetts would do is so long as you have a, attorney-client privilege, I mean, you have a legal purpose. It doesn't need to be 50%, doesn't need to be 51%, doesn't need to be 40%. We're not going to put a um, percentage or um, significance on it. It's just so long as there's a meaningful bona fide purpose. But then 11 years later, we come to this mass general case, which Angie just referred to. And that said, you know, that went back to the significant purpose of the investigation. So um, long story short, we really don't have anything from the first circuit that says what the at least when it comes to federal um, statute claims or federal regulation claims, what um, standard would apply so that you can meet um, a privilege requirement for dual purpose communications? So let's now, this is my favorite part of uh, this program is where I get to quiz Angie. Um, Angie is in-house at Santander. I work with her pretty closely on cases. So I get to pick a brain about how this actually works on the business side. So Angie, We've heard all these definitions, right? Primary purpose, predominant purpose, significant purpose. What does it mean in percentages? But when it actually comes to the in-house setting, are these distinctions practical? What do you do? You know,
2: I mean, speaking for myself, th- these aren't things that are front of mind when I'm sending emails. But that said, um, I, I'm pretty conservative when it comes to how I handle my email communications. Um, I started my career working for elected officials um, even before law school. And I had it beat into me that the emails that I send people, uh, you know, are subject to FOIA requests. They could end up completely out of context above the fold on a newspaper of record. Um, and that sort of governed how how I email people. I'm the sort of person that will send somebody an invite, you know, referencing the matter, um, maybe asking a couple of questions, but then you know wanting to schedule time to talk instead of of hashing everything out via email. Um, you know, from a client services perspective internally, it's it's easier to get to the final answer in a phone call than it is in 15 emails. And I don't necessarily want that email chain out there of, you know, all of the thought process that processes that went into 5 bad ideas before we got to the 6th and 7th good ideas. Um, so in that regard, I, I try and keep as much out of my email as possible. I understand that there are instances, as I mentioned before, you know, where people people need to send CYA emails. We want to make sure that we've got something documented for the file, that, you know, this is what we agreed to. These, these are the things we need to follow up on. These are the questions that we have outstanding. Um, but those, those, you know, those sorts of emails, I, I feel like, are less problematic um, than the in-between conversations that can happen when you're working through some of these issues.
3: So, given that Santander is a nationwide bank and you're spread across different states and jurisdictions which may have different tests. So it sounds like you're doing a pretty you know pretty good job of separating out the legal versus the non-legal content in your emails. But what do you do with the people who are emailing you from the business side? And how do you implement you know that this you said that you're pretty conservative. How do you implement that conservative standard for the business folks? Well, and that, that's where things get pretty interesting.
2: And I think you know, it's, it's these are common conversations that I've had with with colleagues who work in house for for other organizations. Um, you know, we've we've got a pretty solid sense of a, of a, you know attorney client privilege, work product privilege, all of this. Um, you have conversations with the business line about what that practically means for your emails. Then when you're reaching out to them about pending litigation, you know who those emails can be forwarded to, who they can't be forwarded to, how we're how we're using all this information. Um, it can get kind of challenging sometimes. And I I think that's something that a lot of people experience, you know, across a variety of industries. Um, I, I think having a good relationship with the business line and having those constant conversations with them about, you know, what it means to be preparing for litigation, how sensitive this information is, uh, you know, understanding your internal document management processes, um, document retention policies, things like that. Um and and running as many of those traps as you can ahead of time. Um, so when you do find yourselves in these more sensitive situations, hopefully the people that you're working with understand the gravity of the situation and the nature of the information that's being, you know, exchanged back and forth, so that good decisions are being made. With you know, good email hygiene. <laughs>
3: um, so I actually when we were I was preparing for this um, program, I went and you know looked at typically what things you know attorneys and law firms will do. They'll send you a list of best practices and then they'll leave it up to you to implement them. Whether they're practical or not is a whole different issue. So let's go through some of the best practices that I found, and you tell me whether they work.
2: All right, let's do it.
3: Okay. So the first one is designate documents and emails with privileged and confidential marking, but don't overuse it. Yeah, I, I think
2: I think that's a great suggestion, but the the not over and under using it, you know, is is kind of the catch. Some people just default to, you know, the privileged designation, because, you know, it's, this is an email going from an attorney to somebody else in the business. We just want to make sure it's covered. You know, obviously that's, that's not going to work out in the long run. Um, But I, I, I think it's a huge benefit to leverage some of these, you know, technological perks that we have in outlook and, and our other software uh, to sort of help us remember what we're sending back and forth.
3: Encourage business. Sorry. I was
1: just going to say um, you give these, you give this guidance um, to companies to follow, but you have to also make sure that they understand them. So I've had clients before that believe that if they put attorney client privilege on it, that, that, that in itself is all they need to do to for it to maintain um, privilege. So they may put things in there that they otherwise wouldn't because they feel that, that it's covered. So it's also like, not just putting this guidance out there, but also educating them on, on like, a little bit, at least a little bit more than surface level of of the implications.
3: For sure. Um, So on the same line, right? So you're encouraging business folks to use language early in the email body, suggesting the communication primarily relates to a legal matter or follow up with a clarification of purpose. So if you say, if somebody, you know, business person emails Angie and says something, and then Angie responds back and says, if I understand your legal concerns correctly. Now, Angie, does that really work? Um, I
2: I I think that's the sort of thing that maybe would work if you've got the kind of relate if if there's, you know, a business line that you work frequently with and everybody sort of understands the cadence of these things and and where that's appropriate. Um I think there's also an opportunity there for the the attorney to kind of do the same thing and say, you know, based on the scenario that you've provided to me, yeah, this is my legal analysis. Um that sort of thing. So I I think that's, that's one of those recommendations that would kind of come down to the relationship between, between the attorney and the the client.
3: And then one of the things that you had brought up earlier was, um, the need to, you know, do one of those CYA things when, when business folks will send questions or, um, emails to legal, uh, they're thinking of it from a, you know, I want to put this in writing so that it's clear what my position is versus from the legal aspect, you're trying to limit that, right? So how do you balance that?
2: Again, that's where you know, for, for a variety of reasons, I think that's a great opportunity to pick up the phone and have a conversation. Um, you know, you, that's
0: where you think, overuse the attorney-client privilege designation yeah. at the top.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that too. <laughs> I, I I think for a lot of these situations, especially when you're dealing with that kind of internal concern and internal potential internal politics um, around decisions and where you're going to take something next. Um, having having that, you know, more personal conversation about the concern and you know discussing whatever issues might actually be at hand that might be prompting that CYA email, I think you just get a whole lot farther with the conversation. And if you need to follow up with, you know, this is my understanding of our conversation and where, where we're going with next steps, then that makes a whole lot of sense. But you've maybe also solved three other problems with the phone call you've just made.
3: So um in your I know in 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 your line you often work with appraisers and other outside consultants kind of, kind of along the lines of the internal investigation where you work with outside counsel. If you're working with outside counsel, it's a, it's a bit of an easier um, answer. How does it work when you're working with appraisers and you're including outside counsel and you're including yourself in those emails? How does that play out internally? Um, I mean,
2: personally, I'm again, just really, really careful about who I include on emails. Um, I, don't, I don't CC everybody on emails that I send that are regarding pending matters. Um, I I just include the parties that need to be there for that portion of the conversation. It's a combination of not wanting to clog everybody's inbox and and confuse people with emails that they don't need. And the secondary issue of, is this information that this, this person who is not an attorney, not directly related to the issue at hand, do they need this? Is this something that could accidentally get forwarded somewhere else? um when you're dealing with external people like like appraisers and and other consultants that you might need for any particular purpose um just I think being very very strict about limiting those communications to to the issue at hand they don't need to be cc'd on emails for you know fyi purposes on something that's just not related to to what they're doing
3: and a lot of the times I know as um in my old firm we used to have um a little disclaimer on the bottom of the email saying, you know, this is, you're not the intended recipient. Please destroy it. Call us. Um, You know, we, we train people to, you know, if you inadvertently forward something to somebody, just let somebody know. Does that happen?
2: Um, On occasion. I mean, sometimes, you know, I have had someone say, I accidentally forwarded this to somebody. Does this matter? Um, More often than not, I, you know, I'll see it come back around on the fourth or fifth reply to the email chain. That's got my email down at the very, very bottom. And have to go back and trace how we got there. Um, yeah, I, I, again, I, I think that's where a lot of organizations can benefit from regular training with their business line on, on how to handle these sensitive emails and sensitive information.
3: And can you speak a little bit about um, when you said, you know, you have to evaluate your um, document retention policy, how does that play in to this issue of dual purpose communication emails?
2: Well, I think one of one of the upsides about the world that we find ourselves in right now, um, a lot of organizations are having to react and respond to changing privacy laws, and that's prompting a lot of organizations to really take a hard look at their document retention policies, their document management policies. You know, what information are we holding on to for long periods of time? How are we classifying it? Um, and I, I I think that's really helpful um, as far as you know, what we need to do to to prepare properly for discovery in, in in any given situation. We want to make sure that we're not holding on to things that we we should have gotten rid of 10, 15 years ago. We want to make sure that we have an understanding of the types of documents that we're saving, the people who are supposed to be responsible for maintaining those documents to make sure that they're complete, um, make sure that we have, you know, an accurate trail of all the people who, you know, may have touched it, been involved with it, that sort of thing. Um, It just it makes things so much easier for a variety of different functions within large and small organizations, Um, but especially when it comes to preparing for litigation.
3: And then you know we're using Zoom. A lot of uh, companies use Teams. A lot of these have internal chat features, right? Messaging features. You've got Slack, um, Discord. How does how do you um, work with the business teams that have a need to communicate with you through those quick chat messages? And then kind of separate out the whole business purpose versus legal purpose stuff. Well, I'm sure everyone's
2: probably guessed um, I'm not a huge fan of using chat functions. <laughs> <laughs> I obviously, you know, I, I do it when I have to. Um, I I I don't ignore people when people reach out to me, you know, on the chat function, wanting to connect about something. That's when I pick up the phone. Um, in my position, it's a little more complicated because the majority of, of what I do is related to litigation internally. Um, you know, at times I find myself giving advice based on situations that have arisen from pending litigation. Um, but there's there's just not a lot that I do in my day to day that makes a lot of sense to have a conversation over a chat with.
3: So if you were providing sensitivity training, email sensitivity training to the business folks, what would be some of the top points you would be telling your business folks about? Um, When you get an email from legal
2: treat it a little bit like napalm. Don't forward it. (laughs) That email is for you. (laughs) If you have questions, don't hesitate to reach out to the legal department. Um, You know, there, there are no dumb questions. People are happy to talk to you and and walk you through things. Um, When, when you're sending an email to legal looking for help, um, you know, consider outlining the broad strokes of of what the issue is, but but be open to setting setting time and using that email as sort of an, an introduction um, to a larger phone conversation or a larger in person meeting. Um, I I wouldn't rely as heavily on email um, for some of these more sensitive situations where where there could be a question.
3: And then in in, in terms of um, you know a lot of businesses will have if they're consumer facing will have um, phone messages recorded or phone conversations recorded? How, you know, this wasn't a question I thought of, but it just came to me. How do you deal with that, where you are uh, potentially in a situation where you're in a recording setting? I think that's where it gets a little bit dicier. Um, you know,
2: if if you're in a situation where where your phone conversations are being recorded, I I, I would treat that situation the same as I would treat an email. Um, it's It's being documented in essentially the same manner um if if that were a work situation that i that I was facing, I'd, I'd probably be the person that scheduled more in-person meetings just to make sure that as we're working through some of these more sensitive decisions and sensitive conversations, we have a chance to do that with the benefit of true confidentiality.
3: Thank you. Um, and I think we've got a few minutes left over. Um, Dan, I will kick it back to you. We don't have any questions that we haven't answered yet, but I think maybe you could close us out with some. A few more
0: pointers, thanks, Angie. Um, sure, I don't know if they're pointers so much. Is um, just to, two things. One, uh, to reiterate what I think is the is the is the basic message for for local practitioners. And and thank you, Pal. In my most recent skirmish over attorney-client privilege matters, I don't think I used that in the Barris case. But it confirms exactly what I was saying that if you can form a beachhead of having any good purpose, a Massachusetts or federal judge is likely to more likely to protect you than in some other circuits. And I'm going to put that one in my uh, toolkit uh, next time. That case next time I'm going to go find that again. Um, So thank you for that. But it's I I think it really confirms the message, and I hope some people get the benefit of that. That you you're you're lucky to be practicing here if you want to keep things privileged that might be sitting on the borderline. Uh, Also on that point. I did not know, I don't think, until I was preparing for this seminar, that there is a there are restatements of law for everything, right? There's a restatement of the law governing lawyers. I might have known that a long time ago, but I forgot. <laughs> and Section 72 of, of that restatement of the law governing lawyers uh, goes with uh, the, the predominant purpose test. But Massachusetts has not adopted that. You will not find that anywhere adopted in, in, in a Massachusetts appellate case, at least I, I can't and I looked so um that's all under the heading of Massachusetts is is goes easy on you if you have a if you have a a, a any kind of meaningly privileged communication and, and finally on this point I think if you are in front of a judge they really if you were trying to keep something privileged and you can justify it as privilege I I've been in these situations. It's a very delicate matter because it's sometimes a communication of the lawyer who's actually litigating his own communications. There are cases like that. And they really don't want to lower the boom unless they think you're sort of abusing things or really blew it. Um, Angie brought up something a couple of times, uh, maybe a little indirectly. Angie, you were talking about the, the, when you were talking about the, and this is an important point for people to remember, having to do with predominant purpose. And its predominant purpose regarding work product protected material because that so often comes up with you know in parallel in a case with the attorney client privilege issues. Um, Angie mentioned the mass general case where P- where there was an admission early on I'm just passingly familiar with that case there was a mission an admission early on that they had not created something I think in anticipation of litigation uh, which is the key for work product. And you also talked about Angie in your in your day-to-day stuff about how you um, are really careful in matters that have to do with pending litigation, and well, you should be, because if you were going to, because that's where you could use the work product protection to to keep um, the the subject communication out of discovery. But if you're going to rely on that, you have you have got to be able to, to, to prove that the predominant purpose was the anticipation of litigation. So as easygoing as the attorney client privilege standard might be locally, um, and the work product um, doctrine, which works and travels in parallel with it or together with it, that standard's gonna be a lot higher. So everybody keep that, keep that in mind. And including when you are trying to discover these things, not just when, when you're trying to keep them out of discovery. If it, if it wasn't that that person who wants to keep that away from you has to show that the predominant purpose for the creation of the uh, of the communication was the anticipation of litigation. And if they can't, you get it. So go for it. Unless it's Angie's. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, I think that brings us to um, close to the end. Uh, thank you. Um, for staying sticking with us for this entire hour. Thank you, Angie, Thank you, Ben, and thank you, Dan, for being here and putting on the program. Um, I think I think uh, BBA Devin, can you close this out? Yes, I just wanted to hop on and also say thank you so much to our panel and thank you so much to our audience for joining us today. We certainly look forward to seeing you all at future events and have a wonderful day, everybody. Thank
0: you. Thank you.